Well, this morning, we are in the second week of a series that Pastor Brian kicked off last week, and I listened to it, and I thought he did a wonderful job uh, in kicking the series off. Yeah, maybe it was just me, but I thought he did a good job. First service that he did, too, uh, called Beyond Ordinary, and we're taking a look at at different people throughout Scripture and looking at their lives and seeing what God did through them, but decisions that they made that that allowed God to move in their life. Really, the premise and uh, the heart of this series comes from the vision that we have here at Faith Community to help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. So we believe that God has a plan and a purpose for every single, every single person here today and on the earth. That when God creates an individual, he creates them for something. That God's plan for your life is, number one, is bigger than what you ever thought. It's not ordinary. It's not boring. It's more than just getting up and going to work and doing the monotony of the day and then coming to church and hearing, singing some songs and hearing a message and then going home. There is a unique and specific purpose that God created you for and he uniquely gifted you to do that. We want to help you discover that, but we want to also help you just take one step. Where are you today? Where do you think or sense or maybe wonder that God wants you to be? How do we take you, just help you take one step? A lot of the the things that we talk about, small groups and next steps and serving on a dream team and, and just getting involved are all designed to help you, not just help the church, but to help you discover what it is God has created you to do and how to find fulfillment in your life. And so last week, we took a look at Abraham, and we saw that God came to Abraham and asked him, Abraham, would you move yourself, your family, uproot yourself, and go to an undisclosed location? Abraham says, where are we going? God said, I will tell you, but not until you move. So Abraham made that decision to uproot himself, uproot his family, and go. And along that journey, we see that God not only brings him and his family to a destination, but God changes him in the process, and God uses Abraham to accomplish some extraordinary things, and we're still talking about the guy today. And seeing that Abraham, really what he did in the beginning, the ordinary step that I think that he took was say, hey, you know what, God, I'm not fully sure of what is going to happen, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to let you take care of the results, God. I'm just going to trust you. Today, what I want to do is take a look at a man named Nehemiah. Take a look at his story. We find Nehemiah and his story in the Old Testament. It's in towards the front part of the Old Testament in a section called history. If you're not aware, the Bible that we read, the Old Testament, is not in chronological order, but it's grouped by sections. There's law, there's poetry, and then there's history, talking about the history of the Jewish people, of God's people, what they encountered and what they went through. Nehemiah comes right after the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. For a large portion of history, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, but they were split uh, at some point. And Nehemiah is the story of what God did in that time and through him and how he rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been uh, destroyed as the Jews were living in captivity to the Persian Empire at this period of time. We encounter Nehemiah at the beginning of his book. These are his memoirs. That's what it says right here in chapter 1. Today, what we're going to do is read chapter chapter 1, and then read just a little bit of chapter 2. But we encounter, we meet Nehemiah as already a grown adult. We don't know anything about his childhood, anything like that. But we just encounter him. The story kicks off. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. you got your tablet, whatever. Or if you just want to follow me, uh, you can do that. But we're going to dive into this this morning. Here's what it says. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit with me and some of, men, of the other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I myself have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. You said that if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people that you rescued by your great power and strong hands are your servant. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. Earlier, early in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king then asked me, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. As I said, we encounter Nehemiah in this period of history where the Jewish people, he himself is a Jew. They're in captivity to the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. And they've been in captivity to the Persians for about 100 years. Before that, they were in captivity to the Babylonian Empire. The Jews have been in captivity for hundreds of years at this point. What I mean by captivity is they were overtaken, they were conquered by another country, and now are being ruled by them. They have no political power. They are not a sovereign nation. They are not making decisions about what laws should be instituted or not. They have no influence in society in fact, what has happened is they have been exiled from Jerusalem, meaning taken out of their capital city, taken out of their homeland. It's important to understand how, how significant and important Jerusalem were, was to the Jews. Jerusalem wasn't just their city. It wasn't just their capital. It was their identity as a nation. It was a land that was promised to them by God, a land that God promised Abraham, a land that they left Egypt from, spent 40 years in the desert to get to and fought for and conquered. This was their identity. This was the center of their culture. Jerusalem was not just 
their city and their capital. It was also the center of their worship, which was their religion, which was everything about them. Before they ever had a city, before they ever had a place, they had a belief system. They had a relationship with Almighty God. The walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The city is laying in ruins. Jerusalem was everything for them. They've been exiled, living in different parts of the Persian Empire throughout the Middle East. Not only have they lost their city, they've lost their language. Most Jewish people then were not speaking Hebrew. They were speaking the language of the country they were living into because generationally they lost it. They were exiled and they had to live in other countries. And as generations came and went, they lost the ability to speak their own language. They've got nothing left. There are people scattered abroad. Jews are essentially right now in this period of time in history in a refugee crisis. Think about the Syrian refugee crisis being scattered out against their will. That's how we encounter Nehemiah. As they were overtaken by the Persian Empire, there was a king in the Persian Empire before King Artaxerxes, Cyrus the Great. What he said is this. He sent out a decree that all the Jews that could begin to return to Jerusalem, they could go back to their homeland, go back to their capital city. When, when you think of that, I want you to think, I think the closest equivalent that we have would be Washington, D.C. As a, as a moniker for the U.S. And when you see D.C. and you see the White House, you think of the U.S. But it runs even deeper than that for them. So that you can go back. And, and the Jews have begun to make this journey to go back to Jerusalem from wherever they are. They are returning back to their homeland to rebuild the city. We encounter Nehemiah and he tells us that he's living in Susa. Susa is not in Israel. In fact, Susa is in Iran. It's in the modern day city of Susha, which is about 950 miles away from Jerusalem. We don't know much about Nehemiah. We know who his father was. The scripture tells us who his father was, but we don't know nothing about how he was raised. We don't know where he was born. It is somewhat safe to assume that he was not born in Jerusalem. It's, it's almost safe to assume that he's probably never been there. He knows about it, but we, we don't know. We don't know what his childhood was like. We don't know uh, any of those things. All we know is that he's at Susa. He's at the fortress. And the first we hear is that his brother and some of his friends come back from Jerusalem. They've made this journey, this 950-mile journey from Jerusalem back to Susa. And I googled it, and they said it would take 300 hours to walk that. Long journey. I don't know how long it took them. I don't know if they rode a camel. I don't know what they did. But they made this journey back. Nehemiah's question to them is, he says, uh, how, how is it going in Jerusalem? How are the Jews? How are our brothers and sisters? What is it like for them returning to Jerusalem? He doesn't, doesn't know what the situation is like. Again, we don't know if he's, he's been there. We don't know if he's ever seen it. But he's got this passion and this love for Jerusalem and this love for his people and this love for his culture. And his brother tells him, he says, Nehemiah, the situation is, is glib and it's gloomy. And in fact, there's really no hope. They're troubled and they're disgraced. He said the city walls are, 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 have been crumbled. They've been destroyed. The city gates have been destroyed by fire. We know that the temple was also in ruins at this point. The temple is where God's presence resided. This was the temple that David had in his heart to build, that his son Solomon finished, that was a beautiful monument to God. And not just that, but his presence resided in this temple and it was destroyed. Nehemiah's response to this tells us a lot about who he is. It says that when Nehemiah hears the news, he says that I sat down and I wept. 
Commentators say that the language that he's using there is literally, it's almost as if the strength in his knees just and his legs just went out and he crumpled to the floor and he wept. And that word wept means what you think it means, to weep bitterly. He was distraught. He was overcome at the plight of not just his city, but of his people. Because in those days, the cities had walls built around them to protect them from attack, to protect them from a lot of things. The gates were the entry point and exit point. And now his people had nothing. Those walls, those gates were lying in ruins. Remember, promised city is their identity, their culture. The temple is destroyed and Nehemiah is overwhelmed. What we see from this, he said, I I didn't just weep. In fact, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed for days. It wrecked Nehemiah. We see from this that whether or not he had ever been to Jerusalem or he was born there or he even spoke the language, which he probably did, that there is a love and a passion for his culture and for his people and even for God. Because what we read next is this prayer that he prays to God. And in this prayer, we see that Nehemiah loves the Lord. He he knows God's word. He understands why they are in captivity. Like I said, the only thing the Jews have left at this point, tying them together as a people, not their language, not their city, not community, it's the word of God. It's their being passed down from generation to generation. He understands, he prays, God, I know why we're here. I, I, I know that my ancestors have sinned, and I know it's not just them, but it's me and my family. We've disobeyed you. We've rejected you. You said if we did that, that you would scatter us abroad. But God, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember what you said. Nehemiah knew what God had said, that if you would turn back to me, if you would obey me, then even if you're scattered to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back. I will rebuild your city. That's what Nehemiah prays. That's the the cry of his heart. So we know that Nehemiah is zealous for God. He's passionate. He understands. He loves God, loves his culture. And what I find most interesting is is that at the end of that, his memoirs are concluded at that prayer. At the end of chapter 1, he says, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. Kind of an interesting detail, right? Pouring his heart out, praying this vulnerable, open prayer, and by the way, cupbearer to the king. But it makes so much sense with what he does next. We read next that he went before the king. If you remember his prayer, he said, God, grant me favor this day with the king. May he be kind to me. He goes before the king. Pause. He's the cupbearer. What's that? It means that he is, he's in charge of protecting the king. Nehemiah is like a secret service agent charged with protecting King Artaxerxes, who is the most powerful man on the face of the earth. The Persian Empire was the most powerful empire at this time on the face of the earth. Nehemiah's job is when they bring wine and drink before the king, he's got to drink it first. And if he dies, the king knows he shouldn't drink it. Right? I mean, the most common form of assassination at this period of time in history, if you wanted to kill a king or an official, you would poison their food or poison their drink. Nehemiah's job is to test this stuff out. We know that his greatest skill at this point is that he knows how to drink. That's about it. He, he, he literally puts his life on the line on, on probably a daily basis, having to test this stuff out. And then if he stays alive and doesn't get sick, then the king knows that he can, he can partake of it. Now, This type of position requires an immense level of trust, wouldn't you think? That the king would not put somebody in this position that he doesn't trust, that he doesn't believe in, that he doesn't have a relationship with. What's fascinating is this. Nehemiah is not Persian. He's Jewish. 
He's a Jewish refugee. He's a captive. The Persians have taken them into captivity and destroyed the city. And the king trusts Nehemiah, a foreigner, in the most trusted position that he could have. Nehemiah has a relationship and an audience with the most powerful man on the earth that day. It's a position of prominence and prestige and influence and resource. Albeit, he's putting his life on the line. He probably lives in the palace. He's probably well taken care of. And he probably doesn't want for anything. He's got a good spot. How did he get there? We don't know. We don't know how he got this position. We don't know the skill set that he had. We don't know the relationships that he made. We don't know how God worked it out and put Nehemiah in this position. All we know is is that he's got a good job. Apart from putting his life on the line, good job. And he goes before the king, as he had done many times. But he says this day that he felt he was sad before the king. Seems like an interesting detail. Seems almost to us like, okay, he was sad. Who cares? But in those days, to be sad before the king was punishable by death. Because you could not disrupt the emotional state of the king. The king wanted to be happy. Who cares if you're sad? And in fact, they could punish you by death. So when he says, I was sad before the king, that's why he prays, grant me favor this day, O God, because I'm going to go in there. I'm going to lay it on the line. That's about four months from when he's heard the news to now when he's going before the king. And the king recognizes that he's sad and says, Nehemiah, what is wrong with you? I've never seen you like this. You don't look sick. What, what's, what's going on? And Nehemiah says, well, well, how can I even be happy when the, the city of my ancestors where they're buried, buried lies in ruins? And the king says, well, what can I do to help you? And I love Nehemiah's response. He goes, with a prayer to God. He prayed first. And then he said, well, I, I need to go and rebuild the city. King said, how long are you going to be gone? And when are you going to return? Tells the king. And the king says, I grant your request. I mean, there's one of two things that would have happened for Nehemiah. Either the king says, you're dead. Or the king says, well, three maybe. I don't care. Or the third one was, go for it, man. That's, that's what Nehemiah does. And we stopped reading. And what Nehemiah accomplishes is this. He then tells the king after the king says, okay, you can go. He says, by the way, here's what I need. I need resources. I need timber. I need letters along the way. 950 mile journey, granting me safe passage. You authorizing me to do this. Oh, and by the way, king, I want you to pay for it. I want you to fund the rebuilding of our city. We're captives. We're refugees. I want you to refund that, to, to fund that. The king agrees to it. Funds the whole thing. And Nehemiah makes this 950-mile journey, rebuilds the walls of the city in 52 days. 52 days. And and what's cool is is that he also establishes the political structure, which was the religious structure, the law of God. And what's in in a scene in the the, uh, book that is so cool is he's having them read the book of the law to all the Jews that have returned back to the city, all from all over the Middle East. And he's got these translators all lined up. So when they're reading, they're having to hear it in a language that uh, they've never, they don't speak Hebrew anymore. So they're interpreting the word of God. It's like the first, you know, big conference where you have a speaker that has to translate multiple languages. They've got them on these pillars, it says, and reading the word of God, reestablishing Establishing him as a nation is so cool. What, what Nehemiah does or what God does through Nehemiah isn't just rebuilding a physical city or walls. God uses Nehemiah to preserve his people, right? To preserve his chosen people. But it's even bigger than that. Because in preserving and reestablishing them as a nation, it preserves his people so that one day Jesus Christ, born as a Jew in the line of David, could come to the earth 
and be the salvation for all humanity. So, so Nehemiah literally plays a role, or God has him play a role, in Jesus coming to this earth, and all he did was rebuild some walls. Pretty incredible, huh? And I, I'm not going to focus today on, on that, on how he did it, and what he did. And I'm not insinuating that God has called us to go rebuild cities and nations. I think we contribute to that. But what I want to ask is this. Three questions. Number one, why did Nehemiah do it? Why, why give up all that he had to go 950 miles to a place he may have never been to rebuild something that he may never see the full fruition of or reap the benefits of? Why would he do that? Why would he leave a position of prestige and prominence and influence and resource? He has an audience with the king, the most powerful person in the world. He's got every resource he could ever want. Why walk away from that into something that's not guaranteed, something that may never happen? He may die along the way, 950 miles onto Jerusalem. And in fact, as you read, you see that people did not want him to succeed. They did not want the Jews to be reestablished. Everything was stacked against him. Why did he do it? We don't know specifically, but I think part of the answer is found in verse chapter 4. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4. When it says, he hears the news of the plight of the Jews who are returning to their homeland, that he crumples to the floor and he wept bitterly and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed for days. You know what I think? And looking at this, I I think that what Nehemiah discovered in that moment, I think he discovered his purpose. I think he connected with what God had created him to do. I think Nehemiah had this moment, and I think hopefully some of us have had this moment in here, and, and maybe you haven't, but I think we all will someday, where we encounter something, we read about something, we see it, we, we have a need that comes across our plate, where we say this, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have to do something. But ever that I, I, I can't let this pass me by. I can't let someone else take responsibility for this. I can't just say, God, fix it. There's something in you that pauses and says, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I've got to do something. I, I think that's part of discovering our purpose. Is, is finding that thing that we are we're drawn to, something that we have passion for, something that we deeply love. For Nehemiah, I think it all kind of culminated in that moment right there. I would ask you this morning, what is that for you? What is that, that thing that causes you to pause that need? It may not be rebuilding a city. It doesn't have to be something huge. It could be something that you think is small, but it's a part of why God created you because we're not just here to take up space, right? We're not just products of biology. We have a unique purpose on our lives. We are one of a kind. God formed us. Right? The steps that we would take were written down before even one of them was taken, as David says. What is that in you? The other thing I think that Nehemiah began to realize in that moment is, is the prestige and the prominence and the influence and the resources were not just for him. I think he began to realize that his life was meant not just for himself, but for others. I think he began to realize that life was not all about him, that everything he had, God, yes, gave him, but he gave him for a purpose and a reason, and it was to help other people. I got more amens in the first service. I think really what was going through his mind is just kind of a, this, this threshold moment. 
Am I going to cross the threshold with what I'm experiencing now and take a step towards the unknown, a step towards not having it all laid out, a step towards trusting and having faith in God, but just knowing I've got to do something. I think it was in that moment he began to realize, as Jesus said, it really is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That we serve a God who says, that he says this, for I so love the world that I gave. That this life that we live as Christ followers and believers is about giving and it's not about receiving. We live in a culture that says this, you've got to consume. Consume, 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 consume. Get a better house, get a better car, get a better job. If I want a better spouse. I wish my kids were this. I want that. I want that. And we consume and we consume and we consume. And we get to the point, and let me tell you, I feel it. I consumed enough and I'm emptier than I was in the beginning and I've got to go consume some more. Right? And we bring that into the church too. We're consuming. We're consuming preaching. We're consuming worship. We're consuming programs. And I left this church. Why? They weren't doing what I wanted. They didn't offer this. They didn't offer that. And consume, consume, consume. We're living the American dream, aren't we? I think it's the American nightmare. More, 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 more. And it's never enough. Never. Nothing ever satisfies. You can't make enough money. You can't go on enough vacations. You can't have a nice enough house. You can't have a big enough pool. Any of those things wrong? Not at all. I think they're all great. I think they're all wonderful. I think they're all fun. The only problem is when those things have you. When they have us. We got to this point, and I'm pointing the finger back at me. We, we, we feel unfulfilled, unsatisfied. Don't really understand why we're sitting in church today because we're, we have this consumer mindset more, 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 more. When God says, like, if you would just give, if you'd realize all the stuff I've given you, I want to I funnel it through you because I've got a plan for you that's bigger than you, and my plan for your life involves other people. God's fundamental act in the world was giving his son. Give. At the core of who God is, he's a giver. And we're never more like God than when we give. I'm not talking about money today. I'm talking about our lives. I think that's what impacted Nehemiah. He has this threshold moment. I've got to do something. I think that's why he, he began to discover his purpose, to take a step towards that. But you know what I find interesting about this, his decision to go and rebuild the walls? Two things. Number one, God never told him to do it. Nowhere do we read in scripture that God told Nehemiah to go rebuild those walls. You can look at it. It's not there. God didn't tell him to do it. What else, the other thing we don't see is that he never asked God if he should. He never asked God for permission. The prayer that we read, he prays, takes time to fast, says, Lord, grant me favor today with the king. Give me an audience of kindness before him. And we find the decision that he made in that period of time was to go rebuild the walls. What does that mean for you and me? What if I told you that maybe God's plan for your life wasn't always about him saying, do this, don't do that? What if it wasn't always asking his permission to do something? What if... In our lives, following the plan of God looks far less like a divine encounter where God peels the heavens back and says, Oh, Josh, I have called you to do this and thus and that. What if we stop asking the questions, is God's will left or is it right? Is it up or is it down? Is it this or is it that? What if it's none of that? And what if it's us responding to what God put in us and taking a step in the direction that we feel like we should go? 
What separates Nehemiah from Abraham and Moses and Noah and, and men like Paul is this. He didn't have a divine encounter. The majority of people in the Bible didn't have a divine encounter where God said, do this specifically. Now, hey, I would love to have a divine encounter, wouldn't you? And the moment I have one, I'll let you know. I'll be the first to tell you about it. You'll probably doubt it. I've never, yeah, I've never heard an audible voice from God. I'm the pastor of this church, and I can't tell you God specifically said, do this. In the book of Acts chapter 15, they have this meeting, this council, where they, they come together. Jesus is already in heaven. They're trying to figure some stuff out for the church. They've got to make some major decisions of how they're going to proceed. Are we going to tell the Gentiles about the gospel? Are we going to bring them in? All these big decisions, they meet together. I mean, it's a meeting of the minds, right? They are there. You want to know what their final response is? When they make a decision, here's the language that they use. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good. Not God spoke. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to move in this direction. How comfortable does that make you? I'll tell you, it seemed good to me and the Holy Spirit and Lauren that we should be the pastors. And it seemed good to the majority of you who voted yes. Those of you who voted no, I guess it didn't seem good. That's all right. But it seemed good. God never said, Josh, you will pastor this church. No, it seemed good. It felt like the right thing to do. Took a step. I think there are far too many believers, far too many Christians today sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm just just waiting for God. Waiting for God to tell me to do this. Waiting for God to tell me to do that. And we we become spectators rather than participants. Waiting on God. Waiting on God to confirm. Oh, he gave me two confirmations. I just need three. I'm just waiting. You know, I prayed the other day, God, if you want me to do it, and -and so-and-so is going to call me, and they're going to say these few words, and then I'll know. This green car is going to drive out in front of me on the highway. Then then I'll know. It's you, God. Should I do it? I think, stop. Here's what I'm going to say. Stop asking it. Is it left? Is it right? Is it up? Is it down? What if it's not any of that? What if it's just a step? Well, what if I'm wrong? So what? What if you're right? What if I take a wrong step and that's not what God wants me to do? Well, is the step you want to take, is it sinful? No. Is it wrong? No. Is it going to compromise your integrity and your character? No. Is it, is it a scriptural thing, a good thing? Yeah. Do it. What if God doesn't want me to? He'll fix it. He's sovereign. Come on. Do it. Take a step. We live in fear and this... We're paralyzed. I don't know if God told me to do this. I don't know if God told me to pastor. It seemed good. It still seems good. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to me. If you're here today and you're waiting for some divine encounter, waiting for God to peel back the heavens and speak to you in a specific way, you know, can he? Sure. Has he done it in the Bible? Yeah. Will he? I don't know. Take a step. Take a step in a direction where you think that you should go. There's a school of thought out there, and I kind of grew up with a school of thought, that says, I don't move unless God speaks. I think the school of thought should be this. I don't expect God to speak until I move. The Bible says I'll be led forth in peace, not be led forth by the voice of God. Led forth by peace. Do you got peace about it? Does it seem good? Take a step. I step God. I step. Joyce Myers says, you step until God says no. What if we just took a step? That's what I want us to do today. Take a step, one step. Like I said at the beginning, a lot of the things that we ha- talk about here, next steps, small groups, 
joining and serving in a dream team, they're all designed to help you take a step. One step closer to you finding fulfillment in God's purpose for your life. Next steps is going on this month. It's four individual steps that you take. You come, you meet the staff, learn a little about the church. Then we have you learn about who you are, personality tests, spiritual gifts. And then we try to help you find uh, an area that you can serve and get involved in a small group. Take steps. Well, I, you know, I don't know. Just get a little uncomfortable. Put yourself in a position to grow. Take a step. That's all it is. We don't want you to just do it because we want the church to succeed. We do it because we want you to succeed. We want you to find fulfillment. I believe we discover our purpose by doing, not by sitting and waiting. Take a step. So today, if you haven't been to Next Steps, go right after the service. We'll feed you. We'll watch your kids. You don't have to pay anything. You just might find out something. Join a small group. Sit here, you know, I've been here for a while time, and I just don't feel connected. I don't feel this. Join a small group. Be a little uncomfortable. Well, I don't know anybody. That's the purpose. Join. You're not just growing your relationships. You're growing your understanding of God. Hey, you know, I've come here, and I'm sitting every week, and I'm just not feeling fulfilled. Are you serving? No. Are you in a small group? No. Are you doing this? No. Do something. Start serving. I don't know what to do. You love kids? Yeah. Go. I don't want to teach. That's okay. Just go love on them. I'm telling you, you may be more fulfilled by serving than listening to my sermons. Because why? It's all about giving. It's all about giving. We receive and we give. We receive from God and we give. And it's got to be a flow, right? We, but sometimes we're all damned up. I didn't cuss, okay? <laughs> We've built a dam on the inside of us. Where we're receiving, we're receiving, we're receiving, but nothing's flowing out. And we're, un, we're, we're all congested and we're just bloated and we're just like unhappy. And it's like, you're not serving anywhere. You're not, you're not giving out in any capacity. Break that dam. Let it go. Let it flow. Do something. Take a step. I, I really think that's what Nehemiah did. He took a step. His first step was what? Pray. His second step was what? Fast. His third step was what? <sighs> go before the king. What was his next step? 950 miles to Jerusalem. And he encountered a lot of things on the way. I'm not asking you to figure out today what the purpose for your, the rest of your life is. Like, you don't walk out of here and no. I'm just asking you to take a step. One. One step closer. Next steps. Small group. Serve. Some of you, I'm going to take, take it a little bit further. Some of you are in here today and you know what you should do. You're just not doing it. I'm just waiting for confirmation. No, you're not. God already confirmed it. Some things we don't even have to pray about. God says it in his word. He don't have to confirm that. He already said it. I don't have to ask God whether I should help people. I don't have to ask God whether I should give. I don't have to ask God what I should do. In some cases, I just need to do it. But it's scary, right? But it's going to cost me something. But there's a a little bit of unknown. Yeah. I'd encourage you today, stop asking for confirmation and say, Holy Spirit, just give me some action. Let me just... Go. I believe the confirmation you seek will come when you move. The Bible says this, the steps of a righteous man are ordered. Not the waitings of a righteous man. The steps insinuates actions. Take a step. You want to find out if it's ordered? Take a step. Don't worry about failing. Don't worry about perfection. Like I said, God is big enough. If I go right and I should have went left, I think he can whoop, help me do that. But at least I'm moving. At least I'm going. I'd rather, I'd rather work with people that I've got to pull back than I've got to push out. You know? And I'm kind of like that. I'm just like, I'm going I'm to go. Sometimes I need to wait. 
But there are times when I need to execute. I need to pull the trigger. Taking a step today will be like you just pulling the trigger. One step. I don't know what your step is. Maybe your step, your first step today is, I don't even know God. I don't know if I believe in him. I'm struggling with that. That's your first step. Know God. Just to know how I give my life to him. Then you move deeper. Maybe it is a small group. Maybe it is serving in some capacity. Maybe it is giving God, not just of your time and your talent, but of your finances. I don't know what it is. He does. And you know what? Like I said, I'm not asking you to be Nehemiah and rebuild the walls of the city. But I hear, here's what I do know. I am asking you to put a brick in the wall. That's all I'm asking. Put a brick in the wall. Contribute to the wall. See, Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem. Started building this city, but he used the people that were there. And at one point, they're fending off people. They're building the wall with one hand, and they got a sword in the other hand. So they're like troweling it up. Boom. I can't even do it with two. These guys were doing it one. Fighting and building the wall. Put a brick in the wall. It wasn't Nehemiah who rebuilt those walls. It was all those Jews that returned back to their homeland. They had the same passion as him. He organized them. And brick by brick, they built those walls. And brick by brick, it preserved their culture. And brick by brick, it preserved the line of Jesus to come. What if we could live our lives and just say, I'm willing to put a brick in the wall. I may never get the acknowledgement of being the wall builder, but that's okay because that's not the purpose. But I'm willing to put a brick in the wall. That's my question to you this morning. Are you willing to put a brick in the wall? Are you willing to get a little bit of uncomfortable, move out of your complacency, stop asking God, is it left, right, up, down, and just go, pick up a brick, and put it in the wall? And see what God does. And see that while you're putting a brick in the wall, he may show you something completely different. Take that step. You can, you can go to Next Steps today. You can sign up for small groups today. And in Next Steps, you can inquire about serving. And maybe even, even beyond that, not just in here, maybe it's just in your workplace, in your home life, whatever it is. A lot of times, I think we want to tackle the entire wall. God's just saying, brick by brick, step by step, help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. One step at a time. My tendency is if I can't solve the entire problem, I just go to a different problem that I can solve. Take a step back. Say, Holy Spirit, help me. What, what's the brick in my hand that I can put in the wall today? Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray for you, but our prayer teams are going to come down while I'm praying. And uh, as I conclude this prayer, I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And when I'm finished, if you need prayer, We'd love for you to come forward and and we'd love to pray with you in any way. But if you bow your heads, I just have a question here before we kick this off. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Josh, my first step is I don't know God. I want to have a relationship with him. I want forgiveness in my life. I've been living in sin, living with a lack of purpose, broken on the inside, need restoration. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you this morning. I'd love to just connect with you and help you take that first step. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every individual that's here today. I thank you, Lord, that you have put something on the inside of us that longs, Lord, to be a solution to the problem. Holy Spirit, would you help us discover what it is, that that holy discomfort on the inside of us, that compassion zone where when we encounter it or we find that we are passionate about it, we say, I've got to do something. Help us to pay attention to that. Lord, I ask you to help us to be willing to take a step and put a brick in the wall. Help us to to move from a consumer, Lord, to uh, one who is a provider, where we provide the goods that people need. 
May we receive from you, yes, but may it flow through us. May the the dams that we've built up be broken down and there be a flow in us. And may we step back and say, Lord, what could happen if we all just decided to put a brick in the wall? Let you take the credit. You take the acknowledgement for building the entire city. Lord, we're just, we're here to serve. And we thank you, Lord, that you are good and you're faithful. Ask you, Lord, as we go through this week, your provision be over every single one of us, every area of our lives. You provide every single one of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Keep us safe. Lord, help us to find enjoyment this week. For those of us whose kids go back to school or start school this week, Father, we just pray your protection on them, your blessing on them. Keep them safe. Help them learn. Help them enjoy school. Help them to do their homework and all that good stuff. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.